Welcome back to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Today, we welcome Vicki Yaffe, also known as Vicki Louise, to the show. Vicki is a coach who helps ambitious people manage anxiety and procrastination so they can get more done in half the time. She's the host of the Fuck Anxiety and Get Shit Done podcast you can find on any podcast platform. Today, we're talking about anxiety and getting things done. And so many women discover anxiety as a new issue during menopause, and we delve deep into this important subject today. During our conversation, we talk about the definition of anxiety, why we evolved to have anxiety, where anxiety comes from, dealing with procrastination, how our brains hold us back from almost everything, a new definition of goal setting, why failure is so important when it comes to meeting our goals, the perks of being unrealistic, and stay to the end to find out how to deal with imposter syndrome and find more ambition. And at the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find the show notes, plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy this episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you are always the first to know when each episode is released. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for all of the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast. This helps more women to find it and get the help they need during the disruption of menopause because no one should have to go it alone. Thanks again for being a part of the menopause movement. Now let's get to Vicki Louise and anxiety. Uh, Vicki, welcome to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here today. You say that you help ambitious people manage anxiety and procrastination. So why don't we just go ahead and start with what is anxiety? That's such a great question to start with because that's what most people miss. And for me, a few years ago, when I was experiencing daily panic attacks, I did go to Dr. Google and type in what is anxiety? Yeah. And the answer that came up was something along the lines of anxiety is a feeling of generalized worry, overwhelm and unease or apprehension and I remember that moment reading it and thinking what like that's just described a feeling of feelings then how do I know when I'm feeling anxious <laughs> and worried or anxious and overwhelmed or anxious and apprehensive my language is gone yeah one of the things that I recommend everyone listening does and one of the things that I do with my clients is teach them to define it on their own terms and what I mean by that is if it's a feeling of feelings how do we actually feel it for some people it's like heart for me it was heart pounding heat pumping through my body sweaty spinning thoughts for some of my clients it's like a normal or some of them even get like a cold coldness in their chest. Like, where do you feel it? How do you feel it? If it's a feeling, let's get very specific because guess what anxiety thrives off? The vagueness, right? Sure. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. It's going to create more anxiety. I mean, it's, it's really funny that anxiety is coming up. It, I've done uh, a couple of podcasts recently with, with some people talking about anxiety in relation to menopause symptoms and how with menopause, you know, we can have increased anxiety as the hormones go. And then anxiety with, with respect to adrenal fatigue that can be very similar to menopause. It's hard to tell the difference or if they're just like, you know, really closely related. What I find super, super interesting is that I never realized that I had a, a form of anxiety back when I was just getting started in my surgical practice. And 
every time, because of the responsibility of every time I took out a gallbladder, there's this one point where it's, you, you can't reverse it. You can't mm. reverse it. And it's the time when you cut the, the cystic artery and the cystic duct. So these are the two structures that have to be cut in order to remove the gallbladder. And if you do it wrong, it, it's just, it could be devastating for the patient. And I knew my, I knew what I knew. I mean, I knew, you know, I'm a good surgeon. I know my anatomy, but every single time I did it, I would just like, it would come up, you know, mm-hmm. I would have this, this feeling of dread. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until several years later, you know, when I look back at it, I'm like, oh, that's anxiety. That's what that right. is. Yeah. Yeah. And like the way I speak about it is everyone has anxiety. There's no shadow of a doubt that mm-hmm. I remember again at the same time seeing on the medical website, like a governmental one, like one in five American adults suffer from an anxiety disorder. And my background was statistics, economics, and thought 20% of a population size of like a hundred million is not a disorder. It's a trend. Like mm. in any other model, we would be like, huh, where does this trend come from? And that's really what set me about looking into how anxiety, how we evolved to have anxiety, why it exists and really change our dialogue around it so that we don't, you know, a lot of the dialogue is very disempowering and very helpless and, and all of that kind of stuff, which is why I combine it with procrastination. Because often we think when we experience anxiety, it means we have to stop what we are doing and solve for the anxiety, which means we don't get things done. And then when we don't mm. think, get things done we create more anxiety which means more not getting things done and we end up in this anxiety procrastination loop throw in some self-judgment some shame some blame like mix it all in together and this is what's happening i think because of like dialogue around anxiety well it could be that i mean we're supposed to have some anxiety right i mean you think about the way we evolved i mean if there's a saber-toothed tiger coming at us and we we need to have that that anxiety around not dying from you know from a predator and so it's kind of funny because it probably does if, if you have anxiety then you then and I'm, I'm thinking what i'm thinking about is adrenal fatigue and some of the hormonal problems that come along with menopause and if you have anxiety and you're constantly up here then that means that your adrenals are never really getting a rest and there's you know even with mindful tech mindfulness techniques or, or trying to get enough sleep or things like that you may not ever kind of get yourself calm enough to actually get to the point where you know the hormones can can kind of calm down. And so with with respect to anxiety specifically, you know, and I'm a doctor, so I talk about medical things, right? But with respect to anxiety specifically, what what are a couple of tips or techniques that you can, you know, give the audience to uh, implement right now where, you know, if, if they're starting, if they're having a lot of anxiety or overwhelm or, or feeling, you know, dif- having difficulty because of the isolation from the pandemic, what, what are a couple of tips you, you could give? Yeah. So it even touches on what you just said about the saber-toothed tiger. Like it's not that we visually see a tiger and we get anxiety, right? That's not how we evolved. What happened is a messaging in our brain of like, this is dangerous. We could die, which is exactly what happened to you in that operating room. This <laughs> is dangerous. It's like, it's the, it's how our brain interprets right. and the way it speaks and, and, and what it tells us about the situation we're seeing that creates the anxiety. So that is what's happening now. And I I did, like, this is literally what's been happening as with like heightened news and media telling us that we're going to die and, you know, all of this stuff, it's really alerted our primitive brain. Like our brain's one job is not to make us happy. It's to keep us alive. So like, that's all it wants to think about. And when we are exposed to media and conversations of like death and danger, first thing for everyone is of course you experience, 
experience more anxiety now. This is literally its job. It's like we have this board of emotions in our brain and everyone's like, it's anxiety's turn to speak up. Hope's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting involved with this one. And like, you know, happiness is like, what am I going to do? This isn't my time. So really, of course, this is literally why we evolved to have anxiety. Our brains just don't realize that, you know, releasing hormones that allow us to run faster, longer and feel less pain and be on more alert are not useful for um, our modern day dangers or anxiety. So that's the first thing that I say to everyone. And that's why I think it's so important to like have a little bit of an understanding of how, why we evolved to have it, because it's not you, it's your brain. It's evolved to be that way. Everything's working as it should, firstly. And then secondly, what I would say is the very first thing we touched on is really identify what is anxiety, exactly what's happening. Be super specific. If you know, for example, that you get dizziness and you know that's how you do, then you, then you quickly learn that when you feel it coming on, you put your head between your legs. If you know that you get very warm, you can make sure that you open a window or sit down or whatever it might be. Once you know what the tendency of how it like physically manifests in you is, you can react to it. Okay. Well, you can not react to it. You can set yourself up for success. So no judgment. Then what exactly is happening? And then the third step is why exactly is it happening? Where is your brain seeing that perceived danger? Like, what is it attaching to? Mm -hmm. What are the stories? What's the interpretations that your brain's creating? When we, and then the, the, the last step is super simple. It's reminding yourself that you will survive it. Because what happens is our brain and our body built this such highly efficient connection of like anxiety hormones released. When those hormones are in our body, our brain's like, oh my God, tell our brain we're going to die. And like all this system's going through, which is why when you feel anxious, your brain can be like, we're going to die. We're going to die. When actually you've survived every anxiety attack or panic attack or anxiety episode that you've ever had. So mm -hmm. really being like, oh, this is like my brain thinks I'm going to die. It doesn't realize I'm sat on the sofa with my head between my legs. Those are the four steps. I well, I, I like that a lot. And, and I think it's important to know, you know, to, to, to really go back to the fact that most everything comes down to belief. And, you know, you said what stories you're telling yourself around this and Jack Canfield likes to say, and this probably didn't come from him, but I heard it from him first is that fear is just false events appearing real. And, you know, we only have a couple of fears and that's like the fear of falling, the fear of uh, loud noises. Other than that, everything else is manufactured because of beliefs that we created as we grew up. And so it, it, when we can detach a little bit from, you know, if we can realize, okay, this is what's happening. You know, and, and, and actually for me, you know, when we go back to the gallbladder operation anxiety that I had, once I started to realize it, I was like, okay, I can expect this and I know that I can kind of get through it. And so then my heart rate wouldn't go up and, and I was able to do it without as much angst. But I mean, I still had angst because it's, you know, when you have somebody's life in, the, in your hands, it's a little bit, a little bit different, but I never had that same anxiety with any other operation. That was just, that was the one, that was the one that just like every single time, because the stakes are so high and if you get a complication with that it's a really it's it's a problem but yeah yeah so so let's let's move on then i mean i think when it comes to anxiety i think that there's a big part of anxiety can be caused by overwhelm and you know overwhelm then can lead to procrastination and just inertia and so before we move and talk to uh, talk specifically about procrastination let's talk about anxiety and overwhelm and the the particular part of the the overwhelm that that, that can happen when there's a big to-do list yes even i was thinking about it like there's certain emotions that i well i think all emotions actually like as you said belief leads to everything where you plug in certain sentences into your brain and out comes an emotion and with 
with anyone that's saying sentences like big to-do list, too much, a lot to do, super busy, not enough time. It's like when you are believing those sentences in your brain, your body is literally producing overwhelm to shut down. And I was joking with people, you know, my business was always online and always on Zoom. But what happened during COVID times is a lot more businesses went to Zoom and Zoom was crashing. And that's literally what we do when we like have all the things to do. So Zoom is just like overwhelmed and shut down. And that's exactly what happens to us. Yeah, I, I think I think it's really easy to get stuck in inertia where you just stop. And, and it happens to me, there's, there's a lot of things I don't understand. And when I have to, because as a business owner, there, there's a lot of responsibility and I'll get these emails from people, this, for me specifically around some financial stuff that I've got to look at. And I'm like, I don't understand this and I don't want to sign these papers and I don't want to move forward. And so I I like to tell my clients and I like to tell the podcast listeners that the best way to move forward when you're stuck, right, is to find the smallest thing that's impossible to fail. And the reason for that is, is that motivation comes from success. And so when you can find something that is just impossible to fail, like you want to exercise more. And so the goal is just to put on your tennis shoes, right? You put on your trainers, put on your exercise clothes. And if that's the goal, you can meet that goal every day. That doesn't mean you're going to go out for a run. It just means that you got your shoes on and then you're going to you know, start working on your body to get things going. And so it's really important when you're really stuck and you're stuck in overwhelm to just you know, kind of take a step back and say, what is the, the smallest next step that I can take that's impossible to fail so I can keep my feet moving forward. And I think that's particularly helpful when we're, when we're stuck in a, a place of grief or just particular, you know, I mean, a lot of people are just really overwhelmed with what's happening with the pandemic, especially as we're recording this, it's November and this probably isn't going to air until January or something, but parts of Europe just went back into lockdown. And so there's a lot of anxiety and overwhelmed uh, there. Yeah. I love what you said. And I also think it's important for people to see like when we have too much on our to-do list, it's typically coming from a place of like, I'll feel better when I've done all these things. I need to do all these things and I'm a good person. I need to do all these things to prove that I'm worthy, whatever it might be. So we hustle and overwhelm ourselves with long to-do lists and task lists and goal lists to make ourselves feel better, which means we go into doing them feeling terrible about ourselves. Mm. And that's exactly why what you said is so powerful. I loved it. I wrote it down. Motivation comes from success. It's like, really, we should never be doing, you know, I've had clients come to me and they're trying to get 20 things done in a single day. And I'm like, no, why? Why would we even think to do that? Why is it? I mean, I get it. It's part of our culture. It's how we've grown up. But like, I think it's evolving and changing luckily, but busy is important and this whole dynamic when the opposite is true, there's no better place than we are right now. And way too many people that I speak to are hustling to get to a better place and sacrificing their days for it, not realizing that there is no better place. And those are the habits that we're building. Yeah. There's a really good book that Eckhart Tolle wrote called The, the Power of Now. And it's important to realize that, that and, and you know, this sounds so woo, but it's just not. I mean, the past is just a memory, right? And, and we can let it plague us uh, and we can live our lives looking in the rearview mirror 
but you're not going to get very far going that way. Or, you know, if you have goals, it's great, right? You want, you like, I want, I want to make a million dollars or, you know, whatever. I want to lose a hundred pounds. So, so we got those goals and we want to look forward, but until we're being that person right now in the present, there is no chance of meeting the goal. And that's, that's where, when it comes to goal setting and, you know, procrastination, looking at who, who I'm being is so, so important to me. Like, am I making the right choices with respect to my nutrition? Am I making the right choices with respect to my exercise? Am I making the right choices with respect to the thoughts I'm thinking? Those I think are such powerful questions to be asking when, when we're feeling overwhelmed. So for somebody like me who collects things, I collect computers. I collect, I mean, I've probably got, I've got computers. I've got laptops from like 2000 and probably four upstairs. I just haven't gotten rid of them. And, uh, you know, you mean uh, hoard or collect? Oh, no, no, no. It, it's, it's hoarding, but I, I don't want to admit it. So. <laughs> so how, so, so here's the, here's the thing. And this is, this is what I'm looking for. So I totally understand the goals um, around building a business. I understand the goals around creating, you know, creating a, a life that is filled with delayed gratification. I'm, I'm a, doctor. I went to medical school. I did, I did four years of undergrad, actually did six years of undergrad because I did community college for two years. I did four years of medical school. I did five years of residency. And so I understand delayed gratification. I understand, you know, one step, one foot in front of the other just to get to that goal. But when it comes to like getting rid of my clutter, I don't even know how to get started. Just don't even know. I just, I, I, I just ignore it. So what, and, and I can't, I, I, I can't be the only one. I can't be the only one who's got a house full of crap that, 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 that they don't need and, and who just doesn't know how to get going. So let, let's, can you just address that yeah, for me? Yeah, I do. And like move every two years to a different country. You drop all the way. Okay, That's coming. So, yeah. it's, it's hard as a surgeon because I, I, that, that was actually the reason why I moved my business online. That was one of the main reasons because I love to travel and you can't do that. I mean, being stuck to a hospital. Okay. So the problem is that our brain offers us, our brains know us, right? They know what's going to hold us back. I like to think of it like an obstacle course and they set up obstacles to keep us from exerting energy or because obviously they want to conserve energy because our brains mainly have been around in the wild. So exerting energy, um, failing or getting rejected. So something like, I don't know, is a sentence that our brain offers us as a blocker. Like, I don't know how to. If someone came to your house today, offered you like, a million dollars and was like, go through it and do it. You would be like, okay. You won't be like, oh no, or $10 million. Or if someone you loved was in danger and the person said to get them out of danger, would you do it? It's not like, I always think, you know, we speak about things being so hard or we don't know what to do, but like, I literally, like, it's not like I need to suddenly have this conversation with you in Russian. Now we're talking about hard. Now we're talking about, I don't know. And I could still probably figure something out if that was like, if something super big was on the line. I would figure it out just like in moments like that our brain can surprise us so Mm. I don't know I call it I don't know land we sit in like the I don't know land which is super comfortable because and it like we just I don't know well I don't know well as though it's an answer instead of like what do you know what would you know if you were to get rid of one computer today 
exactly like what you said about the goals and the trainers. Same thing applies. Sure. If you were to just commit to one thing today, would you know how to get rid of one thing today? And would you know how to get rid of one thing tomorrow? And as you build up that trust of one thing, one thing, then you do two things and then five things and then it's done and you're like, oh, it wasn't even hard. I knew the whole time. Yeah. So it, it's, this, it's the same thing, I guess. It's the micro commitments. It's just applying them to that area where we're blocked. Exactly. Where we feel like we're blocked. Yes, because our brain want our brain has decided that we are blocked, but we are not actually blocked. Like I'll tell you, I used to I used to cook for myself all the time, and then I got married, and he's an amazing cook, and now my brain's decided I'm a terrible cook, and I wanted to make this soup, and and I was trying to remember, like my I I noticed and saw my brain get into such a hissy fit around it about making this soup that I've made so many times because it was telling me he's a really good cook and I'm not, and all this whole thing where I like I literally knew how to do it. My brain had just been sad for a few years in this story of like, he's a really good cook and I'm not. I love that. And, and, and that comes back to the story, right? That comes back to the, 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 the story or the belief that we have, the, the meaning that we put on whatever it is. And one of the ways that we can define suffering is suffering comes when we add meaning. You know, things mm-hmm. just are. They're neutral. They don't care. They don't care. They're just things. But when we, when we put meaning onto those things, that's when we really get upset. I, I, there's a good story I have from back in the 80s when, when I was in my 20s. And I had parked my car over by my friend's house. And we had walked. I didn't live very far from her. So I'm not sure why. We, we had walked somewhere. I don't remember where. Come back and my, I had a flat tire. And um, she's like, you got a flat tire. And I'm like, I do. She's aren't you upset? And I'm like, why? I can't do anything about that. And it's so funny because something like that never, never triggered me. But if somebody looked at me cross-eyed back then, I would get like really crazy and upset. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's just kind of funny how we, how we choose to to apply meaning to things and, and make them not neutral. Yeah. Do we even choose or are we always consuming media and information that influences what we think matters? Hmm. Yeah. Like, Like, could you think of something that bothered you then that doesn't bother you now or something that didn't bother you then that does bother you now? And if so, what was the change? Yeah. So for me, it's taken me a long time to kind of migrate the trauma of my childhood. And I won't go into a whole lot, but there was, I had a pretty traumatic childhood and I just used to look at everything through that filter. I used to look at everything as the victim, as the victim. And when I started to grow up and realized that those were things that happened in my body, but they were just things. So who I am is not this body. And when I, when I really started to develop a spiritual practice and really understand that there's so much more to us than just this body and this brain, then I was able to kind of really neutralize it. But that, that was a lot of work. I mean, you know, there was a lot of work. It's like 20 years of work. So I, I'm, not, I'm not minimizing anyone who's dealing with, you know, childhood trauma or adult trauma now because those the brain, when trauma happens, the, the brain puts a puts a warning in and says, you know, you, you got to watch out. You got to watch out for, for these types of people. And then we can ca- always kind of see the filter and that can, that can become a barrier, an obstacle for us as we, as we move forward in our lives. And so it's really, really important that we try to be 
you know, step back and be the observer, kind of like you, you were talking about before, you know, how you could observe what happened with the soup, you know, and, and, and the fact that you were able to step back and be the observer probably is what allowed you to step forward and actually make the soup, which was probably delicious. Yeah, it was good. I didn't mess it up. I was like, okay, but it was so interesting because it was something that I'd done times before and the whole experience of it had changed because I'd built a different story around around it. Yeah. Even like to speak about for you with the computers, even that it's like probably loads of people have old computers or a room of junk or whatever it might be. But do we attach the story of I'm a hoarder or not? <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I could choose not to, or I could choose to do it. I mean, there's, there's things that I've never opened. There's, there's outfits in my closet that I haven't worn in years. There's things in my closet that, you know, computers that I haven't even tried to power on. And so the thing to do is to probably put a drill through the hard drive and just say goodbye. And and it's just a matter of taking the time to do it and, you know, carving it out among yeah. all the other things that I have to do. Yeah. So it's like we either have the choice of taking the 10 minutes that it would take to drill through the hard drive or deciding it's not a problem. And when it is a problem, you will solve it. Because what we do so often, and I see this, I'm thinking about a client that I know that, you know, that I've spoken to and she's like in a relationship thinking about leaving. So she's in the relationship the whole time thinking about leaving, which completely impacts the relationship. Should I or should I go instead of right now I'm deciding to be in the relationship otherwise I'm not like a decision happens in an instant a decision to start a relationship to leave a relationship to leave a job to move your business online to throw away a hard drive like they happen in a moment so right now you are sat in the decision of not doing anything about it you can either like criticize yourself or think that you should be doing something else or you can just own that right now this isn't a priority and I trust that when it is it's as good as done yeah. I mean, I love that because you can let go and that, that frees up some space in your brain. We have to also remember though, that when it comes to change, that there is a big, big factor of thinking about change. You know, it's like the upward spiral of change and there's a whole part is just like thinking about it. And then once you make that decision, that's when change occurs because then you're able to start taking action. But before that, it is a lot of mulling around. And, and the, the story I like to tell about this is probably in my mid forties, we took our son to a Lady Gaga concert in Madison Square Garden, that place. And I was, I was thinking, I had been thinking a lot about exercising and I hadn't been exercising because I had been focusing on building the surgical practice. And so all the time was spent on that. And I was like, I got to get in shape. I got to get in shape. And I, and there was some emotion attached to that because it's such a strong memory. And it was not too much longer after that, that I actually did start exercising and was able to kind of modify my lifestyle and drop some weight and a lot of weight, a lot of weight actually. But the contemplation that is involved, I think we don't want to skip over that. While, while decisions happen in an, in, in an instant, it is still, the contemplation is an important part of it for our brains. So interesting because I, I feel like that's the opposite. I think this is the beautiful thing of the world is that yeah. there's so many different solutions. But like what I really teach people is how to create rapid results by making quick decisions and well, owning the decisions that we're in. I don't disagree with that. I, I, I don't disagree with that. And you can certainly like, shortcut everything by allowing yourself to, to make more rapid decisions and trusting your instincts and things like that. But in terms of, you know, neuroscience and the behavior in the, and the science of change, these are things that we see. And if we can shorten the contemplation period to, you know, make the decision and then take action. And that, that's why we talk about what's the next, the smallest step, right? And then motivation, more motivation brings, you know, success brings in more, more motivation. And those are, those are the things that really keep us going. I, one, 
one thing I always wonder about is how does an elite athlete, I mean, I'm not an elite athlete. I'm just a, you know, I do, I do, you know, I swim and I bike and I run. I wonder how, how does an elite athlete measure their success? Because, you know, a 1% change is a lot when you're that high up, when you're that much of a high achiever, how do you, how do you become, you know, 1% higher, 1% higher, 1% higher on a regular basis? Somebody like Michael Phelps is, is what I think about, right? Here's a guy who was number one, you know, best in the world, and then would take weeks off from training would eat McDonald's and still was able to win gold medals and did drugs. And, you know, I mean, obviously he's turned his life around and stuff, but, but I just, I think, and I find this stuff really fascinating. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's another big part of it. I think that like, this is what we spoke about with the 20 tasks in a day, yeah. like 10 hour work days. It's like the opposite is actually the optimal strategy. It's t- time on and time off and time on is super focused, super committed, getting it done. And time off is really resting and really like not doing it. And what we're seeing in the world and again i hope this is something i'm changing or like i'm seeing change is people suddenly like checking their emails in the evening and working at weekends so in, so we're having less time off and mm-hmm. it's even when you think about literally an athlete that wants to build muscle like i think the best way to work out is heavy weights with plenty of rest so mm-hmm. why do we not think that applies to our brain and achieving our goals and our schedule and all of that good stuff as well like of course it does yeah. like taking proper rest is want like I very much I'm like anti-hustle movement I hashtag it a lot on Instagram because it's been so glamorized and it's literally burning people out and they produce less results and it takes away from relationships and family and like it's not glamorous at all it's really costly yeah I agree with you and 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 trying to do too many things at once can can really just kill your productivity I do one thing at a time and I just focus on it and I'll you know, set a timer or something, but it's, it's so important to just try to focus on that one thing and then get it done. Like, so if I'm writing, I'm just writing, or if I'm reading, I'm just reading. I'm not, you know, I try not to eat while I read or, or any of those things, you know, if I'm eating, I'm just eating uh, that kind of thing. So, so it, it's, it focus is so important and, and where we choose to put our focus is so important. So let's, let's move on and talk a little bit so we've talked about productivity. Is there anything else you wanted to say about productivity? I think we've touched on it there, but I will reinforce it because I do obviously teach people how to become more productive in their time on, but you can be, you are a good person with or without productivity. Like this is way too common where we attach our worth to being a productive person. And now I speak about productivity and how to be more productive a lot, but it comes through a filter of being kind to yourself is going to be the most productive thing. Not like, you know, there's a lot of tips and tricks and all of this fun stuff, but I think the messaging somewhere along the way has got a bit sidetracked. So for anyone, it really comes down to like, you are not resting properly. If you watch a movie on Netflix and feel guilty the whole time about something that you have to do tomorrow, then you are taking away from your rest time and taking away from like, maybe procrastinating watching Netflix, like the guilt and the shame around not being being productive 24 seven is more harmful than not getting the thing done. Like we have to learn to drop that. Um, yeah, I, I like that. You know, and as a doctor, it's really funny. I, the, the thought that just came into my head was I always tell people not to smoke. Right. I mean, when I see patients who smoke, I'm like, don't smoke. They're like, I'm going to gain weight. I'm like, I don't care. Gain weight. It's okay. 30 to 50 pounds more on your body is better than that smoke, you know, that toxic metabolic weirdness that happens when you smoke. And it's almost the same way because we're so responsible for our own well being based on the thoughts we choose to think. And so if I'm sitting and watching Netflix, you know, whatever the, the best Netflix is today, and currently it's the Queen's Gambit. Have you seen that one? 
<laughs> oh, go watch that. It's really fantastic. But if I'm sitting watching that and I'm thinking about how I have to do this and I got to do that and then I got to go and do this and I missed out on this, then it's definitely not going to help with any of my rest. Sometimes the rest is the work. Sometimes just taking that break. And and I find that since I, I, I retired from surgery back in July, at the end of July, so I'm just a couple months outside of you know, being a clinical practitioner. So I've taken up reading. I've got, I read every day for two to three hours. And I'm currently, I'm currently doing this epic series called The Wheel of Time. It's 14 books and I'm three books in. And, <laughs> and so I'll read, you know, every couple hours every day, but sometimes you get tired of reading, right? You just get, you get tired of reading. And so I, I looked out my window and I just drew a sketch and I'm not an artist. I've never been trained in art. And it was just fun because I'm like, okay, well, this is what I see. And let me see if I can add some perspective and, and things like that. I've always, I've always been kind of a photographer, but never really much of an artist, a drawer. And so I was like, wow, maybe this is something else I could pick up and, and start to learn. Resting, resting is, is important and finding ways to engage in both sides of the mind is is really I find as I get older and older the the, the best way for me I mean not, and to keep my brain sharp but on top of exercise because we know that exercise helps keep our brain sharp is to engage in more creative types of activities that that use the, the right side of the brain we're so focused because of the patriarchy we're so focused on <laughs> no it's true it's true i mean and and this great book the alphabet versus the goddess i probably bring it up every 10th podcast or so but the alphabet versus the goddess is the best book on the patriarchy I've ever read because it just talks about how when written language started, all the goddesses started, you know, were murdered. It's really interesting. And it's not their fault. I, you know, we started using the, the other side of the brain. But when you can start working with the conceptual side and the, the feminine side and start to see more of creativity, I find that for me, I, I, come, I come back and I'm like, oh, this email is easier to write. Oh, I, you know, being in front of the camera is easier for me now because I understand myself better. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about uh, setting goals. Yeah. So I will say most often the way we set goals is we set goals to succeed. And we do that because our brains don't like to fail. So we set a ceiling. We set a goal that we think we can do. When really the difference, like that's basically a to-do list, right? But like, I'm going to set a goal that I know I can do. And what I teach people is how to set goals to fail and to, you know, it's kind of like wherever you put the ceiling is where you're going to reach. So um, when we get very comfortable with failure, it doesn't just impact that one goal, it impacts all the different areas of our lives. It impacts our ability to have our own back and handle different emotions and um, really our self-trust, our self-responsibility, our self-reliability. Like it it is a, like goals are for growth, not for success. And our primitive brains are like very, you know, attached to avoiding failure for reasons we spoke about earlier. So I would say that. I, I love this because the mindset of being able to fail forward is a foreign concept to a surgeon. Mm, I bet. <laughs> Okay. And when I started my business, the, the menopause movement, I really had to work hard to undo all those beliefs around failure because you don't start a business without failing it forward. You, you got to test things and they're going to fail and then you have to tweak them. And, you, and that's very, very different. I mean, I suppose in training, the reason why, you know, doctors who have just graduated from medical school aren't allowed to operate is because they won't know how, and they don't want people going out there and experimenting on people. 
And so there's, you know, we have a whole residency to teach people how, how to, how to do it. At the same time, even mistakes from residents was not accepted. So it's really, it's really hard to change that mindset. But when you think about it, how we live inside of a box and always our growth is outside the box and our box grows and then it goes out. And so failing forward is always the way to go. It's just, it's just a, it feels like such a, a foreign concept to me because failing, failing at the, and, and that goes back to the, you know, the gallbladder and the, mm-hmm. the anxiety at the beginning, you know, because there's such, such a, it's the, the stakes are just so high. Right. So yeah. it is so interesting to go through that process of like deliberate mindset changing when it's, it yeah. is literally like learning a language, like learning Russian. And when you first learn it, you're like, okay, but you need, you need it in English and then you translate it. But there does become a point where you are able to speak about it and dream it. And I think it's the same, even for like changing off our mindset around failure. It's like, what's the investment that we can make? And I'm going to bring it back to the shoe example again, of like, what are the small ways we can acknowledge our fails on a daily basis and sit with the discomfort of them because it is uncomfortable. It doesn't matter, like, even for people that haven't been doctors and done residencies and had people's lives in their hands, we are all programmed and conditioned to not like failing, even from school. Like, every system around us from a young age teaches us that. Um, how can we build a failure tolerance? And I think what you said around the sneakers totally applies here as well. Sure, yeah. Is that, that if you just put on your shoes, <laughs> that's enough. But another way to look at it, I think, would be have some measure. What did I fail at today? And just reframing it. If you can reframe failure as... You know, failing means that I'm growing. Failing, fail, I mean, I tell my, I tell my, you know, the women in the mental system and, and people in the menopause movement, I tell them that that anything worth doing is worth doing really badly at first. Yeah. Anything worth doing is worth sucking at it first. Yeah, I say it's called effing up for a reason, not effing down. <laughs> I right? love it. Yeah. Um, it's, and it, even to bring it back to goals. So even today I was on the phone with someone and she said, I've got this client, I've got this goal to get five clients by November 20th in her business. And I said, okay, but don't set the goal of having five clients on November 20th. Every single day, set a goal to create a client Monday to Friday. Weekends always off people um, yeah. so every single day. And what that means is you are going to fail and you're going to know that you failed because you said today, I committed to getting a client. Why didn't I? And then we've got something to learn from. Instead of just having one fail, now she's going to have 14. Well, no, hopefully not 14, but she'll have more. And that's really how we quantify it. And we learn from it and we hold ourselves accountable to goals instead of having like my six month goal. So you said you've lost a lot of weight. So instead of saying in six months, I want to lose a hundred pounds, like how much do we want to lose every week? Not because it's going to be super fluid and we're going to lose every week and it's going to be super easy, but because it's going to bring up all of those stories, all of those problems, all of those fears, all, like, and we're going to solve for them. So by the time we've lost the weight, firstly, there's no imposter syndrome. We know exactly how we did it. And mm. secondly, when those same stories show up, which they still will, we're still going to want the cookies. We're still going to want to stress eat or whatever whatever it might be. We already potato chips. <laughs> That's my thing. Potato chips. Oh, love so them. We're going to know like, oh, but I also, I've wanted potato chips 10 times and not had them. So I can do it. Yeah. Again. Yeah. No, that's, that's really good. That's, and it's just, it's just retraining the brain to think differently. And we, we have this ability, but we so often get stuck in our more primitive brain and let it just let life pass us by instead of like designing the life that we want. And so it, 
what I love about menopause is that it's a, this time for us to really look. It's a time for us to reflect because it's so disruptive and we can actually start looking at it and say, okay, how do I want my life to be now? Now that I'm halfway through or now that I'm that, you know, for me, I mean, I'm changing careers or my children are grown or I want to go back to work now. I mean, there's just so many options. And I think it's so important for us, you know, the older women, women in menopause to, to have this opportunity to take a look and start creating rather than just letting things happen. And one of the things that can happen is, you know, we're 50 and we're like, well, what happened in the last 25, 30 years? And, you know, at least we can take it by the hands. Now we only get one life. I mean, at least one life that we know of. <laughs> yeah. Cause we might get more, but, but we, you know, we don't know. I mean, listen to Brian Weiss. He'll tell you, he'll tell you there's, there's one life, many bodies, but yeah. So let's you know, let's, let's, let's move on to what the, this is from your outline. You talk about the perks of being unrealistic. I think this works really well in talking about goals. And so if I say, you know, I want to lose a hundred pounds in a month. I mean, we know that that's unrealistic, but is it unrealistic really to say that I want to lose a hundred pounds in three or four months? Yeah. Again, it comes down to allowing ourselves to fail. So I definitely mm-hmm. would say like let, something like losing a hundred pounds in a month, like that's not beneficial because it's, probably <laughs> no, it's really unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but the benefits of being unrealistic could be in terms of like deciding now to run a marathon in one year, you know, if you've never run before. We're like, well, that's crazy. Like, I don't even know what I'm capable of. And the point of that is how will you stretch and show up to running with that goal? And at the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter if you run the marathon or not because of how you've shown up to achieve that goal. Even, okay, so let's say losing a hundred pounds in three, four months. Like it doesn't actually matter at the end of it if you've lost the hundred pounds because it will happen. But mm-hmm. how you've shown up, how you've committed how many potato chips you've not eaten, how many times you like how you've grown by being it. But the main benefit of being unrealistic comes in when we set a realistic goal and we're like, I'm going to lose, like, whatever it might be, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose five pounds this month. I'm going to lose five pounds this month, right? Our brain gives us all, our brain that is wired to keep us doing the same thing, not change, wired to go for immediate pleasure, like, potato chips and avoid sugar sugar and avoid exerting any energy like running is going to be like it's going to try and talk you out of it it's like Mm. i don't know do we need to lose five pounds this month we could start tomorrow one day is not going to count these chips are already open all of that stuff is going to come up now you like and this negotiation of like will we won't we will we won't we whereas if we have an unrealistic goal our brain's like this is crazy we can't achieve it we're not arguing with our brain we're like yeah it is crazy you're right. Okay. So like, let's say, let's take it even to like a business goal. I coach a lot of people that want to like grow and blow up their businesses and their anxiety and all that stuff stops them. And we set unrealistic goals for their growth and it stops their brain from arguing with, stops them from arguing with their brain. For example, someone that wanted to take their business to six figures um, in six months this year, like her brain was like, that's ridiculous. And she was like, it is ridiculous, which meant that she didn't spend time arguing with her brain. She spent time creating value, create like serving her clients over delivering, which meant she created the six figures in 10 months. Like, mm-hmm. does it matter that it wasn't in the six months? No, because how she showed up was totally different. And now she's going to do it in less than six months again. Yeah. So the other thing to look at when it comes to goals, I think, is to set your intention, even if it's an unrealistic 
ex, you know, intention. You say, I want to make, you know, I want to have a seven, eight figure business. And then you kind of work backwards. You know, you start, you start focusing on, okay, well, well, who is that person who owns a 10 figure business? And who is that person? You know, what does that person do? And who, what kind of people does that person have around them? And then you can just, you set it, you forget it, and you start focusing on the process. And when you start to focus on the process, you know, usually the outcome will take care of itself. You get the outcome you want or the lesson you need. Yeah. I also totally agree with you. I think there's something to be said for writing down and like own it, like writing down pens of paper, your crazy goals and Mm -hmm. not attaching to them and not needing them right now, but just like letting them be there as we get on and like, as we get down to business on maybe our more realistic goals. So Mm -hmm. the combination of those two is I think where the magic lies. Yeah, no, that's great. So let's talk a little bit about ambition and how you work with your clients on ambition. Yeah. Like it's really comes down to this, like our brains are built to be in this box, to put, to keep us in this box. And yet so many of us have this desire for something outside of that box. And there's this like dissonance between what our primitive brain and our prefrontal cortex brain want. And I think you really touched on this as well when you said about like realizing that, you know, you can have a new career and you like, and even like with the drawing, like there's always things that we want to do, but yet we deal with a brain that's always trying to shrink us mm-hmm. and having those two, and we believe it instead of like understanding it's, it's just doing its, its job and that doesn't need to stop us. Now, I really love working with like, I call it like change makers or rule breakers. And there's really rules of society, even like, you know, people I know that are like women retire their husbands or, or yeah, like launch successful businesses, like seven, eight bigger businesses at at 50 or 60 or 70, like there's rules that we follow from a society that like years ago. And then there's what we are actually capable of. And there's a huge gap between them. But what happens when we do that is we go through all the mental doubts and all that negative self-talk, all the fears, all the anxieties. Like it's a very uncomfortable process to go through. I literally spoke with a client today and um, she does branding, but she didn't do a graphic degree or whatever it was. And her brain's like, you like, who are you to do this? And I'm like, but how are you better positioned because of that? Like what make, like we think our weakness or because we don't conform to society's rules and how we build our businesses, it's a problem, but how is it a strength? And when we start to see it that way, we show up differently. When we understand the anxiety is part of the ride, the fear is part of the ride. It's supposed to be there. It just changes what we are capable of. And again, we end up blowing ceilings that we didn't even imagine. Yeah, I love that. And I want to bring up a book uh, called, you know, you're talking about rule breakers and there's this really great book by Jay Samet called Disrupt You. And it's, you know, it's several years old, but it's still, it talks about how the disruption that we've seen in tech, you know, for, for example, Uber and taxis, how that can, we can do that in our own lives. You touched on this woman who brands businesses and probably does a really good job at it, but she had this imposter syndrome. And when it comes to imposter syndrome, I think it's really important that we actually take a step and observe. And I'll tell you my own imposter syndrome story. When I, when I first graduated from my surgical residency, I started as a solo practitioner. I didn't have any senior surgeons to mentor me. I was alone and I was doing all these operations. I had these recurring thoughts. They're going to find out 
They're going to find out I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to find out. They are going to find out. And and then I started thinking about like, okay, I'm doing these operations. I'm doing them by myself. My patients aren't calling me and saying that, you know, their hernia is now back and they're not, you know, I'm not having all these patients have all this, you know, all these complications. So I, I changed the story. And oftentimes when you control the narrative, right, you can control everything. When you have imposter syndrome, everyone has it. And I think it's really important to take a step back and do a tally of what you're doing and your successes. Because when that happens, when you when you can pay attention to the successes, then it's like, okay, I can I, I can do this. And if you still have insecurities, then there's there's ways to fix that but through education. I yeah. think it's so interesting as you were saying that, like imposter syndrome is basically that something has changed and our brain is still attached to the old story, mm. right? Like you were capable, you were doing the surgeries and your brain was like, but wait a minute, we're new. Like this is more yeah. important. Listen to me over here. And it's like the actual facts are you are doing an amazing job. And I think like for everyone listening, that's like a huge takeaway is imposter syndrome is literally you have grown and your brain is just more attached to the story of who you've been. That's yes. all that's amazing. That's a great, that's a great way to end this. Was there anything else you were hoping to share today? No, no, this has been amazing. That's great. So where can people find you? So you can find me on my website. It's vickilouise.com, V-I-K-K-I, Louise. Um, You can find me on Instagram, vickilouise underscore, underscore, underscore. And I have a (laughs) podcast, but it's, it's got swear words. Can I swear or not? Yeah, you can swear. Oh, okay. We're all adults here. Okay, fine. It's called (laughs) fucking... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's called anxiety and get shit done. So oh, I love it. Yeah. F asterisk CK. And okay. That's yeah. great. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today and being a part of the menopause movement. And it's, it's, this has really been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. It's been so fun. Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life. And to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. This is why I've created this brand new course called Understanding Your Hormones and Managing Your Menopause. I want to show you how you can get on top of your menopause right now so that you can start to see it as the best time of your life. Now, this course is valued at $500 and is in the beta testing phase. And we're currently accepting applications for women to test it out for us at no charge in exchange for feedback and testimonials. But the best part is because you're a podcast listener, you can bypass the application process and go straight to the front of the line. To register right now, simply visit menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones and we can get started together right now. Remember, you can get started right now at no charge to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials when you go to menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones, and I'll see you inside the course. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement.